This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone, and, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you to Deepak and to the Chopra Foundation for having me back. Uh, some of you, if not many of you, have seen me speak uh, before. Um, there we go. And um, today, I, uh, because Eric shot had a family emergency um, uh, uh, and he couldn't make it, I'm going to actually present what I would normally present and also what Eric Schott was going to present, and that is the uh, results of our meditation trial that you've heard about that just got published. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about what I do in my day job when I'm not writing uh, books with Deepak, um, and uh, that is Alzheimer's disease. But I chose for my title today, uh, Neuroplasticity Epigenetics. But neuroplasticity is the, is the subject of superbrain. Um, epigenetics is the subject of supergenes. And, um, and I want to talk about a theme of navigating the mind, picking up where David Shaw left off in terms of how he uh, underwent his recovery, uh, which was to, was, which was to work with the, his, using his mind to use his brain in order to get his brain to serve him. And I think what he said there was very important, that, he, that his brain was serving him, he's not serving his brain. Because you might imagine that after a terrible infection like that, where the brain has been, uh, and the circuitry has been so disrupted um, that a lot of strange things can happen. Um, and it took a lot of strength for David to then uh, be able to, uh, to use his mind, mind over brain. And I look at it three layers. There's you, the, the real you, who realizes you have a mind and you have a brain as a tool to then navigate the mind. But you can also, in that sense, as you navigate the mind, be using your brain to its best ability. So that's, that's the title. So hopefully this will work now. So I want to talk a little bit about Alzheimer's disease. And this is the most common form of dementia in the elderly. Um, People ask me, you know, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia when there's a diagnosis in their family? Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia, which is catastrophic cognitive decline. And there are over 5 million patients in this country. And the thing is that in all of us, after 40 years old, Alzheimer's pathology begins. And we now have the means to imaging, biomarkers, and different tests to tell you if you're on your way to Alzheimer's disease in terms of symptoms of dementia 15 years before you're going to get it. So it's interesting, like if you, get, if you have a tumor, we say you have cancer. You have no symptoms, you have a tumor and you treat cancer. If you have plaque on your heart, you have heart disease, you treat heart disease, you don't have to wait to have a heart attack or congestive heart failure for the doctor to say, okay, now finally you have heart, heart disease. But in Alzheimer's disease, we wait until the patient has dementia to say you have the disease. But it's really a lot like cancer and heart disease. That pathology is beginning 15 years before symptoms. The way we're going to stop this disease is to know you're on your way, detect early, and then prevent the symptoms from ever occurring. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how we're going to do that, and then talk to you about meditation being one way to do that, um, and then talk to you, and then show you some of the med- meditation results. So, um, risk factors for this disease, number one is age, family history, uh, uh, gender, two-thirds of patients are female. I don't know if you knew that. We still don't know why. Uh, head injuries and stroke are also risk factors. Even emotional trauma, using, losing a loved one, you'll often see that someone then goes downhill cognitively and starts to suffer from dementia. And the current drugs we have really treat the symptoms and temporarily and uh, really just barely better than nothing. We've got to do a lot better than that. 
So, so many people ask, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and, you know, um, uh, uh, just getting older, you know, having senior moments. Like, you know, I came into this room for a reason. The two dinosaurs seeing the, the ark going away. Oh, crap, was that today? Um, you know, I've forgotten what I'm on hold for. Sometimes I, you know, I call somebody and I don't have my cell phone, so I can't see who it is. And I think the phone's ringing and I have this panic. I forgot who I was calling. You know, you go into a room and you have no idea why. These things happen. And that's not Alzheimer's disease. It's not Alzheimer's. What that is, is, is this. And that is that, you know, when we're young, every single moment is incredible. So there's the little kid up top. Not, 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 nothing much happened. Maybe a balloon got blown up and he's like, wow. And then here's this guy down here. He's like, yeah, so what? I've seen like 100,000 balloons in my time. Time. It gets blown up. It pops later on. So, so what happens is you become jaded. You become apathetic. Your bandwidth is too stretched out. You have to realize when it's just that and, um, and not actually Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a, a, a very different thing, um, and that is that there's specific pathology. There are these plaques that are like big, gooey boulders that accumulate in the brain around nerve cells. In the nerve cells, you get these uh, uh, sticky, twisty things called tangles, and then you also get massive inflammation. And in all diseases, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, inflammation, which is the response to the pathology, often causes way more damage and takes you out versus the pathology itself. So for 80 years after Alzheimer described the disease in 1906 in Bavaria, we had no idea what caused the disease. And then in 1987, um, as a student, I and, and, and others found the first Alzheimer's genes, the first one I named amyloid precursor protein, APP, because it makes these amyloid plaques. And then there are some other ones here. And now we finally have the genes that could teach us what's going on. Um, I was interested, interesting to hear um, the fellow, uh, Mr. Horgan, yesterday say that geneticists find genes and just do gene therapy. Actually, we don't do that. Um, there is, you can do gene therapy, but what, what, what really happens in medical genetics is you identify genes, and then you use those genes uh, in order to understand how the disease is caused, and you come up with biochemical pathways and drug targets, or lifestyle intervention targets, and then you come up with therapies. Rarely do we actually go in after finding a disease gene and then manipulate and do gene therapy. Um, this is the usual cost for going from genes to drugs, and that's what we've been doing in Alzheimer's disease. So for a long time, we were using transgenic mice. I mean, it's a very disturbing photo. Uh, transgenic mice. I don't know who that guy is, but he's... You wouldn't want to be him. Um, so we were using transgenic mice where we were putting the Alzheimer's genes into these mice, and we could not recapitulate the disease. It was just, we just couldn't create Alzheimer's completely in a mouse. And then we finally came to this great scientific conclusion that humans are not 150-pound mice, that this does not exist. So we had to do a little bit uh, better. Um, and then this is uh, an article from the New York Times, mainly to show this guy, Duyan Kim, really talented scientist from uh, our group. Uh, he actually trained with my wife, Dora Tanzi, who's here. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, and he came up with this idea of Alzheimer's in a dish. So the idea was take human stem cells, turn them into nerve cells, then grow them in a gel that mimics the brain. And if you do this in liquid... The human neurons don't work. They don't work like a brain. But if you put them in what they really live in, which is like, a, you know, your brain's like jello, three pounds of jello in your skull, um, then what we could do is actually get these nerve cells to form circuits. When we put the Alzheimer's genes in, they made plaques, they made tangles, and, and we were able to recreate Alzheimer's disease in a dish so that over a six to eight week period, that comp completely recapitulated a whole lifetime of Alzheimer's disease. 
See, so that's so I'll just show you a next slide. So we call this Alzheimer's in a dish. And these are a mini brain. So look at this, look at these guys. You know, think about consciousness, right? What the heck are these guys talking about? These are neurons growing in a dish. They're wild neuro, they're just wild type normal neurons. And see how they're firing, having a good old time, having a party. And then in the middle, these have the Alzheimer's gene in them. Not so much flashing, big green blobs where the nerve cells are dying. And then if you wait, that's, that's after two weeks. If you wait seven weeks out, these are the Alzheimer's nerve cells. So we can actually visualize what happens in, a, in a, an Alzheimer's brain in a dish. We can see plaques, tangles, actually see the firing of the nerve cells. And what this has allowed now is to use this dish and screen drugs 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper than what we had to, than we tried when we were trying to do it in mice that didn't really even do this. They didn't really recapitulate the disease. So it's really changed a lot. Um, and uh, Duyan Kim, um, uh, and, I, and I credit my wife Dora for training him for, for how good he is now. He's actually a very smart guy. Uh, made this possible. So now if we click, so now what we could do is, here's that pathology again. Plaques, tangles, inflammation. These little things down here, those are names of genes. These are all the different genes we found that, um, and we and others, I should say, that's the collective we of science, that are risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Here's the first four we found here. And in blue, here's many other that we found. Some are involved with tangles, some are plaques, some are inflammation. But now we've been able to go further, and now what we've realized is that low-grade infections, tiny bits of bacteria, virus, and fungus that enter the brain as we get older can actually also trigger these tangles, not just genes. And now we know that 5% of mutations in these genes cause Alzheimer's with certainty, but in the other case, in the 95% of cases, the genes involved only affect your risk. They affect susceptibility. It's also a function of how you live your life. We now know that, that low-grade infections can play a role. Uh, we see that even, even one single bacterium, one single bacterium in the brain can trigger an entire plaque overnight. This has completely changed the paradigm. We just published this um, about a month or so ago. It used to be we thought plaques took decades to form, and it was how much you produce of this material versus how much you clear, and it has to reach a threshold amount of amyloid, then you make a plaque. In this case, if there's a bacterium or a virus or a yeast there that just sneaks into the brain, your blood-brain barrier starts to go downhill as you get older, your adaptive immunity starts to dwindle, then you can get out amyloid instantly. So this is a new avenue we're, we're going with. And then if you look over here, this pie chart, these are all the different drugs, 38 different drugs that now we've been able to find among the known and approved drugs in the U.S. pharmacopoeia and other drugs that have already gone through safe, safety uh, testing and trials, all of which either hit plaques or tangles and block this process. We could never have done that in mice. And, um, and so this is just since we, pub- since we fu- got this dish model in, in the end of 2014, now we have just a whole treasure trove of different drugs, many of which are ready to go into humans to test uh, against Alzheimer's because they work in the dish. And some of them we already just sent a package off to the FDA for, for our, our favorite one uh, that we hope to get into clinical trials in humans next year. So it's really been a wonderful game changer and it's made me much more optimistic about the future of stopping this disease. So picture early detection of the disease when you're about 40 or 50 or 60 and, and you have high risk of going on to get it because you see with imaging plaques, tangles in the brain. But now here's a little drug to stop it. Just like if you have, your doc says, you know, you got a lot of, you have high cholesterol, you got some plaque around your heart, you don't have, you don't have heart disease yet, but we're going to bring your cholesterol down. That's what we're going to do with Alzheimer's is treat tangles and plaques 
and, and stop the disease before it hits the symptom stage. So this is much better news this year than for some of you who have been here over the years at different stages of scientists. This is probably the best news we've had so far. Uh, we're very happy about that. So, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and, and, and believe me, it's because I have really good people working with me. Um, so next, next slide. Um, so now, this is what, what happens in Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease first hits an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And hippocampus means seahorse in Greek uh, because it looks like a little seahorse. It's, if, you, if you put your finger over the top of your ear and push in, you would hit your hippocampus. I don't recommend doing that. Um, and you can see if you were able to look in there, that's what the hippocampus looks like. All these, the nerve cell bodies and then those extensions like you saw in Bill Mobley's talk this morning, the axons, the dendrites, they're forming circuitry. And what the hippocampus does is very quite straightforward. Besides mo- uh, uh, modulating your emotions, fears and desires, etc., um, as you're taking in new sensory information, what allows you to know what I said a minute ago is that it gets stored there in the hippocampus first. So you have minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, even day-to-day memory is first stored here in the hippocampus. Then it has to communicate with your frontal cortex. And, and there were some of these diagrams you saw from Bill Mobley this morning uh, show how that happens. And then that's how you have context of the world. Things happen now. They go into short-term memory. Then those, those memories trigger memories in your, your full map of your brain and your long-term frontal cortex, and you're able to make sense of the world. Well, picture if that can't happen. Picture if no longer those neurons that are storing information about what I just said a minute ago, they're storing the information, but you can't access them. They can't be turned on. Well, you're kind of lost at sea. And what happens as a result is you lose your sense of self. Because if you can't take what's going on in your world and put it in context in terms of time and space, and you can't take what's going on and map it onto everything you've experienced your whole life, fears, desires, who you love, who you don't like, relationships, um, hopes, um, uh, all the joys of your life. If if you can't access that, you lose your sense of self. And that's why this is such a terrible disease, because it rips apart that circuitry, like, like tearing apart a tapestry that you formed your whole life that's defining your personality, and it goes away. And, and the people who, are, who love you see that tapestry going away as well. So there's really just not, almost nothing worse in life than having to deal with this disease. And this is uh, where it starts, is the hippocampus. So click. Um, and, and, you know, just to show that, this, I'll just quickly go through this interview Alzheimer had with, with the patient he first described, August Dieter, who had a, and we now know she had a gene mutation in one of the genes that uh, we found in 1995. In fact, if you, how many of you have seen the movie Still Alice on Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, so we actually, because I was consulting with Lisa Genova on that movie, Alice in the movie, movie had the same mutation that August Dieter had. Um, just a little bit of trivia about uh, the movie. Um, and so Alzheimer said in his journal, he asked her her name, and she said August, that's good. Last name, she said August again, that's not good. Um, what is your husband's name? August, I think. How long have you been here? Three weeks. Well, it was actually her second day in the hospital. And then she broke down and cried hysterically, and she just kept telling him, Doctor, I've lost myself. I've lost myself. And that's what this disease does. You lose your sense of self um, because the circuitry that, that helps you to have a brain to, that in your mind is defining who you are goes away little by little every single day. So these are the different, these are the, this is called the triune brain. 
And uh, back in the brainstem area, you have innate memories or instinctive self. That area of the brain is 300 million years old. It goes back to reptiles, fight or flight, that type of thing. And then about 100 million years ago, the limbic system, that's where the hippocampus is uh, formed. And that's short-term memory, emotional self. And then the newest part of the brain is the neocortex. That's about 4 million years old, or the prefrontal cortex. That's where you have your long-term memory. That's where you're building roadmaps of your entire life. So the short-term memory is keeping track of the day. It's modulating fear and desire. Um, It's telling you what you don't like and what's painful, and the memory of that creates fear. It's telling you what you like and what's rewarding. That's creating desire. But your map is up here. The map of who you are is in the neocortex, uh, often called the intellectual self. But it's much more than that. You heard from Bill this morning that it's also your seat of empathy. It's also your seat of creativity, meaning, purpose, and I think most importantly, self-awareness. And if we can define what's happened to the brain in the last three to 400 million years, selfishness, that's the brain stem, you know, it's mine, 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 oh, you're bigger than me, I'm going to right away, I'm going to away, it's yours, 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 right? That's the brain stem. Selfishness is going down with evolution, and self-awareness is going up. That's how our brain's evolving over the last several hundred million years. And then that means that with self-awareness, that also becomes awareness of others of whom you're a group. There's more social bonding. There's more sense of unity with the world. There's, that's the reason why suddenly we're having meetings like these. That's, that's due to the evolution of our brain toward uh, self-awareness, empathy, and uh, unity. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, what's happening is, I, is that you first hit this limbic area, and then that can't, can't uh, c- uh, communicate with the f- cortex, and then this is the path of destruction that leads, leads to uh, the destruction of self. So as I kept thinking of these things over the last few years, several years ago, I was thinking, you know, what does Alzheimer's disease then teach us about who we are? What is self? Is self, you know, is it, you know, what is the roadmap of the brain that creates self? How is it that I can know I have a brain that creates self? Who am I really? Am I, brain, am I just my brain? Am I, am I the mind that I navigate with my brain? Or am I the person who knows I have a brain that I navigate with my mind? And I think it's the latter. And so as I was going through these, uh, these, these different thoughts, just in general, philosophically, thinking about the disease, um, I started reading a book. I, I got to know the Hindu monastery in Kauai, and we have two uh, members here uh, 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 today uh, with Sadashivanatha Swami and uh, Rajanathan. And, um, and I started reading the book by uh, Subramunya Swami, who was the guru that founded this uh, monastery. And this book, uh, incredible book, Merging with Shiva on the metaphysical side of uh, Hindu, Hindu and Vedanta teachings. And these quotes really struck me. The core of you is the observer of all experience of the emotional, the instinctive, the intellectual areas of the mind. And this one. Seeing the mind in its totality convinces the seeker that he is something else. He is the witness who observes the mind and cannot therefore be the mind itself. And so quotes like that and thoughts like that that came up from this uh, book then uh, heavily played into this idea of you are not your brain, you are not your mind, you're the user of your brain. The real you is the user of your brain. Your brain brings you your world If you now take advantage of your neuroplasticity to create the world you want, you can live a much better, healthier life. So this is uh, at that point at TED Med uh, with that fateful day at the urinal. um, I met... uh, 
I met Deepak. I got to tell you, afterwards, a really interesting story. Deepak, in his talk, was talking about how when he was a Buddhist monk for a month, uh, he, they had to walk barefoot on these really sharp stones and rocks. And he asked, uh, uh, I guess, the head monk, you know, what, how do you deal with this? I mean, my feet are killing me. And he said, well, while you're walking, you only, you know, one foot's on the rocks, the other one's not. So only one foot's hurting. Just concentrate on the foot that's not on the rocks. And... <laughs> So I thought that was really cool. And then, and then literally after the, uh, the bathroom event, I went to the beach. This was at Hotel, Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego. And I went in the water, and I forgot to do that San Diego shuffle, which some of you know. And I stepped on a stingray. And I, I mean, the pain, I can't tell you. Uh, it was the most, I mean, it was beyond pain I ever thought was possible. You know, I, there was a barb in there, and I pulled it out. So now I had to walk with this red flaming foot all the way across the hot sand of the beach to get back to the hotel. And I remember Deepak saying, oh, that foot feels good. Oh, that one doesn't. Oh, that, and just, and I had to suddenly be, so I was incorporating Deepak's teachings instantly um, that same day. And, uh, and, and, and believe me, there was a little bit of thinking there of synchronicity that said, this means something. I told, I told Dora, I said, I think I'm supposed to email Deepak and get something going. And, and that started a, a, a great string of emails and thoughts about the brain along the lines of some of the things I just told you. And we came up with this book, uh, Superbrain. Yeah, so you heard this from, from, from Bill earlier on. That your brain consists of billions of nerve cells and hundreds of trillions of connections called synapses, and that's your neurocircuitry. But your neural network is reshaping itself all the time. Everything you think, do, every action, every response, every experience is reshaping those synapses and your connections in your brain. So in, in some sense, based on the choices you make and how you react to experiences you have, you're in charge for your neural network. And your brain, as you know from Dan Siegel, is allowing you to experience things like thoughts and feelings. And what we like to say in, in, in the book is when it comes to thoughts and feelings, don't identify with them, observe them, be the witness, and then move on. And if you want to remember that, just remember OM, right? Observe, move on. So you don't want to deny your emotions and things going through your brain. It's happening for a reason. But after you observe them, learn from them, experience them, just remember to move on. Detach and move on. That's the idea. So as you heard from Dan, your brain serves you by bringing you sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts. Sift, Deepak mentioned that. And I want to use the example of a lemon. Now, when you see a lemon, right, you heard about your fo- the photons, you saw the slide, the photons are hitting your eye, it's bringing your brain, the image of the lemon, and now you know you see a lemon. But you wouldn't say, I am a lemon, Right? Your brain brought you the image of a lemon. Now let's say someone squeezes the lemon in your eye. That's not a good thing. Your brain brings you pain, and then you may say, I am angry, or you may say something much worse than that. But the idea here is that to say I am angry is just as foolish as saying I am a lemon. In, in one case, the brain brought you the vision, a sensation, an image of a lemon. In the other case, your brain, after bringing you pain, brought you the feeling of anger. So, it's, so the idea is that it's much healthier to just know your brain is doing its job in making you feel anger so that you go to the guy who sque- squeezed the lemon in your eye and you do something about it so he doesn't do it again. That's called survival, right? So this is the basic idea, is it? And I think, you know, I, I love this, this, this sift idea from Dan because it's saying, just remember that that's your brain as an organ doing its job for you. The real you is the user of your brain and the user of the mind that your brain navigates. 
that you navigate with the help of your brain. So let me move on now to supergenes and epigenetics. And this is a, a very wordy slide. I hate wordy slides. But it's just to remind me to tell you that epigenetics was actually first you know, proposed decades ago. And the idea was that it was proposed that in human development from embryo to senior citizen that we're not completely hardwired in DNA. There's also soft wiring. In other words, you can't change the genes you, got, you inherited from mom and dad, but you can change gene expression. So everything you do, again, actions, thoughts, experiences, etc., is not only reshaping your neuroplasticity and your circuitry in your brain, it's shaping the programs of gene expression. Now, we're not saying that we can give you some guidance and say, now, if you want to change gene A, B, C, and D to go up and Z, X, Y to go down, you know, just eat mashed potatoes, you know, we can't tell you that. But what we can tell you is that there are beneficial or salutary changes in gene expression programs, and there are gene expression programs that will hurt you based on the habits you keep. So habits become very, very important. And I won't get into this today. Maybe Deepak and I can discuss it later, but there's also data from other species like mice that when you modify your DNA based on your experiences, you can pass those modifications on to your offspring. Think about that. That based on experiences you have that then change the expression of your DNA, that because it's a chemical modification like methylation or acetylation, at least in mice, we can't, you know, it's harder to show in humans, obviously, but at least in mice, those changes can be passed on to the offspring. So that means you have a newly acquired genetic traits based on expression that can be passed on to the next generation. So your genes make up about 2% of your genome, only 2%. And um, much of the rest of your DNA is, uh, we used to call it junk DNA. Now we have much more respect for it. It's, uh, we call it intergenic DNA. That's like the politically correct term for it. Um, and that DNA in between the genes is controlling the activity or what we call the expression of your genes. And so at every moment, your gene expression is changing based on what you're experiencing or eating or thinking. But anything you do often in routine, like a habit, it's all about habit, then your gene expression becomes soft-wired. It becomes semi-permanently modified by chemicals like methylation and acetylation. So now those genes are always going to express the same way until you change the habit to a new one. So this says that when it comes to epigenetics, the most important thing to remember is not that, you know, thanks to epigenetics, one single stem cell can turn into so many different cells in your body, like the heart, brain, and kidney. That's true. But for your own life every day, epigenetics is actually changing your gene expression in response to how you live, and habits change it semi-permanently, meaning until you change your habit. Like, let's say you eat junk food every day at McDonald's, your gene expression has to compensate for that. All these genes have to get together and say, oh my God, he's eating a Big Mac again. He's going to have inflammation. He's got all this sugar and fat and, and, and petroleum products. And you know, so now these genes get turned on to deal with that. And those genes mean well, but if you have excess activity of genes that are meant to help you, like inflammation genes, they hurt you. Think about inflammation. It's meant to help you, but excess inflammation causes tissue damage. So you don't want those genes turned on when you don't need them, and that's what bad habits do, and epigenetics modulates that. Um, so your epigenome is, is described as your gene expression reshaping itself in accord with your choices and resulting experiences. Epigenetics is that your, your habits, based on your choices and routine, program gene expression via chemical modifications that now soft-wire those same gene expression changes. And the thing to remember is bad habits 
lead to unhealthy gene expression programs, good habits, the opposite. So how do you break habits? You know, Deepak has often said, when you want to break a habit, resistance leads to persistence. So if you told this guy not to smoke anymore, right, that would lead to him doing this, smoking about 300 cigarettes at once, right, or eating crap like that. So we say, instead of don't resist, rewire, and these are the four R's, recognize your bad habits, then repeat healthy choices. As you repeat healthy choices, you're rewiring your neurocircuitry and you're reprogramming your gene expression through neuroplasticity and epigenetics, respectively. So rewire rather than resist. And uh, this is another quote from Deepak. Your mind and body today are the results of your habits yesterday. Your mind and body tomorrow are the results of your habits today. And what's really cool about epigenetics is even, though, even if your epigenetics completely, is completely bad and, and just uh, in, in, in tough shape and hurting you, if you take 60 days, roughly 60 days, to take on a new habit, whether it's in uh, exercise or food or, or sleeping or, or uh, stress management, you can reprogram your genes. You don't really know how you're doing it but with habits you can do that. And these are the main four categories, and these also affect risk for Alzheimer's. Diet, exercise, sleep, stress management. I'm just gonna end by just, giving, just showing you a list of these. Physical exercise, number one, leads to a 60% decrease in incidence of AD. Try to get eight to 10,000 steps per day if you have a, a device that tells you that. A healthy diet, the Mediterranean diet is, uh, has been shown to be very useful in reducing risk. Take care of your microbiome, as you heard uh, today from Dr. Knight. Social engagement. Um, uh, ashwagandha and cat's claw are two um, supplements. Ashwagandha is an Ayurvedic uh, herb that helps get plaque out of your brain. Cat's claw is a Peruvian vine that helps uh, dis- dissolve tangles and hits inflammation. I, I take both of these every day. Um, uh, learn new things. Brain games don't really help. You have to just keep learning new things because every time you learn something new, you make synapses and you also strengthen the synapses you already have. And what Alzheimer's disease is, is loss of synapses. So the more synapses you lose, the greater the degree of dementia. If you, I tell people when they're going to retire, don't just think financial reserve, think synaptic reserve. You have to save just as many new synapses up as money to have a good retirement because the more synapses you have, the more you can lose before you start to uh, lose it. Um, eight hours of sleep. Eight hours of sleep is no longer a recommendation, it's an obligation. Uh, not getting seven to eight hours of sleep uh, is kind of like uh, smoking a pack of cigarettes and eating two bags of potato chips sitting on the couch every day. It's that bad. Because now we know that it's during sleep that your brain cleans itself out. The brain, with all these plaques and tangles, during deep sleep, to get cycling out of non-REM sleep into that deep sleep where you're in the delta uh, stage of sleep, that's when your brain stops making amyloid. It's the only time you get a break. And it also cleans the amyloid out of the brain. In fact, the Dreamweaver device that we're trying out here, some of those programs can get you down to delta. Of course, meditation can get you there as well. This is when the brain really starts to clean itself out. And finally, meditation. So I just want to end with the meditation results. This was the data that Eric Schott was going to present. Um, And this is the paper that just came out last week. Meditation and vacation effects have an impact on disease-associated molecular phenotypes. This was a joint collaboration with Alyssa Appel, Eric Schott, uh, Paul Miller, and others. And uh, it was carried out with Deepak uh, running the meditation uh, retreat itself at the uh, La Costa, at the Chopra Center. So here's what we did. Um, We had uh, 30 
women who were expert meditators. They were regular meditators and very experienced with meditation. Then 60 other women who were randomized. So that 30 were just at the resort having fun. And if you've been to La Costa, you know most of you have been there, the other sages and scientists. And the other 30 were at La Costa, but also learning how to meditate. So novice meditators, and that was randomized. And uh, Deepak was teaching the primordial sound meditation, body and breath awareness, self-reflection. For the vacation group, they're hanging out, you know, leisure activities, some exercise, some daily classes on healthy living, but not learning how to meditate. And, and it was those 30 re- expert meditators who were teaching the novices here in this group, um, together with Deepak. So this is just shows a slide of, of this, this is to depict a gene network. Each little uh, glowing guy here is a gene, and this gene is talking to that gene. There are 20,000 genes in our genome, roughly. And those 20,000 genes make about two or 300,000 messages called RNAs, and we can look at all of the messages that are made in our genome. That's called the transcriptome or transcriptomics because they're transcripts of the gene. And what we can do is we can compare these networks of genes as they talk to each other um, in people who are, let's say, just in a normal state versus those who might be in a disease state, or in this case, those who learned how to meditate. So you can actually compare gene networks in a control group, and in this case, in a group that's uh, undergoing meditation. And this is um, the, uh, uh, the gene network map that we got. I know it looks very complicated, but the highlights are one more click. Um, that we saw that these inflammatory genes that, that are being turned up, uh, you know, when you don't get enough sleep or you're eating junk food, they start to settle down. Um, we see that wound healing genes that, again, they're meant to help you, but too much of them can hurt you. We see genes involved with the clearance of the amyloid in the brain going in the right direction, and we see viral genome expression also being changed. What we saw was these were the main categories of changes we saw in gene networks, but we saw them in both Alzheimer's, I mean, both, I'm sorry, we saw, we saw them in both Alzheimer's genes, inflammatory genes, other genes, and the beneficial changes were observed in both the vacation group, just relaxing, and the meditators. But what I'm going to show you is that the meditators also had extra benefit beyond the vacation group. So it says vacation is great, meditation is even better. These are just, I think this tells a story. This, these are the, the, the networks of genes talking to each other in the vacation resort group, and these are the ones in the meditation uh, network. And there's some overlap, but um, they're not exactly the same. And then I'll just summarize the differences we saw and where we saw similarities. So what we saw was, um, these are, that's the vacation dog, that's the meditating dog. No dogs were harmed in this study. Um, so you have a significant vacation effect that benefited all groups. Suppression of acute stress and immune responses, greater sense of self-awareness on the psychological side. But there was also a significant meditation effect within the regular meditator group, the teachers, characterized by distinct gene networks relevant to healthy aging. We saw that their telomere activity, this, the, the telomerase activity, this is the enzyme that, that Liz Blackburn got the Nobel Prize for showing. This is the enzyme that, that grows the tips of your chromosomes so your cells don't become senescent and aged, and we saw that activity go up just in the meditators. We also saw that the people who meditated uh, uh, routinely had a better profile of the amyloid beta protein that makes the plaques in their plasma, right? They already started that way and got even better. The novices started off not so good, but after a week of learning meditation, their ratio of amyloid proteins in the plasma also got better against risk for Alzheimer's disease. 
So that was unexpected. And to be honest, if I was going to write a science fiction novel about this, I would not have gone this far with the data. Um, I mean, it was really quite surprising and quite, quite nice to see that, that relaxing is great, Meditation's great, but meditation gets you even extra things. We also saw a significant uh, distinction just in general between the beneficial effects, and, uh, and we also saw in the novice meditators that a month later, they had a greater maintenance of stress reduction, so that the people on vacation a month later were all you know, angry again, but the people who learned how to meditate on vacation a month later were saying, yeah, it's not so bad. You know, vacation was good. This isn't bad. So, uh, and we don't know if they kept meditating. I guess we can ask. But basically, that the results were long-lasting. Next slide. So the take-home message is to end is both intensive meditation and relaxing vacation led to beneficial changes in gene networks involved with stress and inflammation. Uh, this is what you want to do to reduce your risk for most age-related diseases. For regular meditators, a week of intense meditation led to additional benefits, changes in gene expression, and age-related proteins that were not observed in the other groups. And for the novice meditators, they had beneficial changes in the Alzheimer-related markers, maintained stress reduction one month later versus the vacation group who did not. So that means that, that I think the main take-home message is that vacations can be very expensive and time-consuming, especially at La Costa. Um, but, no, it's a great place. But, it's expensive. But you can meditate every day for free. So, and you get even more benefits. So that's a pretty easy message. So uh, next slide. Um, now we've gone and created what's called SBTI, Self-Directed Biological Transformation Initiative, going beyond meditation to diet, exercise, yoga, um, all these good things. Uh, next slide. And these are the uh, principal players who are running SBTI. Paul Mills is our faithful uh, leader at UCSD. Um, and then this is a new paper that just came out yesterday uh, on SBTI where uh, we were able to show that Ayurvedic intervention um, uh, looking at metabolites in the body or metabolomics, we also had beneficial effects um, in um, healthy subjects. That paper just came out in Nature Scientific Report. So we're on a roll now getting these papers out. So just to conclude, uh, the, the, me the central messages here, you rewire your neurocircuitry or neuroplasticity as described in Superbrain, and you modify your gene expression programs or epigenetics, as we discussed in Supergenes, with every thought, word, deed, experience, choice, reaction you have. And the, and, and the recommendation is take charge. You know, observe and navigate your mind at every moment you can to do this consciously. In other words, consciously guide your neuroplasticity and epigenetics. You can't tell neurons what to do. You can't tell which genes to turn on and off. But healthy habits and diet, exercise, sleep, Stress reduction will lead to this transformation you want that will help you become healthier and reduce uh, risk of uh, age-related diseases. And finally, uh, and I just want to end with a quote from Rumi where he was hitting on this early on, motes of dust dancing in the light. That's our dance too. We don't listen inside to hear the music. No matter, the dance of life goes on, and then the joy of the sun is hiding a god. So I'll end there, and thank you very much. Okay, so sit, Rudy. Uh, <laughs> over the years, our conversation runs like this. Rudy, close your eyes. What are you going to do? <laughs> Guess what? Imagine a beautiful sunset on the ocean. Do you see, pic do you see a picture? Yeah. Where is the picture? It's right there. 
right there? Yeah. If, if I did a CAT scan of your brain or an MRI, would I see a picture? If you have a good imagination. <laughs> so no. all, all, all I'd see is uh, neurochemicals, right? You'd see firing in the visual cortex to conjure up that picture. Mm-hmm. But where is the picture? You're experiencing a picture. Um, so the fact is we don't know. I mean, um, we don't know how the JPEG is stored. We know how to pull it up. Okay, and how did you summon forth that picture? Uh, volition, intention. And where did that come from? From me. See? <laughs> okay, from being. Um, do you remember the house you lived in when you were a kid? Yes. Where was that information before I asked you the question? So, we don't know. I mean, neuroscience can explain how information is recorded, modified, and recalled, but how that information is actually stored and where it is in a milieu of protein and fat and uh, uh, in, in neurons, we really just don't know yet. That's... that's uh, uh, the fact. I mean, there are those who are, who are trying to, there are neuroscientists who will tell you that eventually through connectome projects of seeing how the brain connects that we'll figure that out. Um, but it's a leap of faith and we just don't know. So that's basically the essence of the hard problem we are still struggling with. We actually do not know the mechanics of intuition, memory recall, or even if memory is stored at a cellular level. Is there a cellular substrate for memory that we know of? No, I mean, what we know is that complex firing of, you know, millions of of neurons making synapses allow you to recall an image upon uh, volition of wanting to do so. But, you know, how you can see your mom's face in your mind, where that face was, how that that image is stored, uh, anybody who told you they knew that just uh, would be lying. Intuition, insight, introspection, imagination, creativity, choice. This is what we're about, and we don't know the basis of that as yet. So as our conversation evolves, and, you know, Rudy and I have kept a kind of a record of our emails and our text messages, uh, I I have to... Although I heard WikiLeaks might have them, so... Oh, (laughs) So what we have is the paradigm that we are examining here. There's a materialistic, physicalist paradigm, and then there's a non-physicalistic paradigm. And the paradigm I come from, but I'm also educated in this paradigm, says that every form is a phenomenon. Okay, so everything that you think of as a noun is a verb, everything, including the table, and atoms and subatomic particles, they are phenomena. Every form is a phenomenon, and every phenomenon arises and subsides from that which is formless. Formless. But without that formless, there would be no experience of form. So great Indian poet Tagore, he said, in this playhouse of infinite forms, I caught sight of that which is formless. And so my life was blessed. 
together we are trying to expand this conversation so we can bring science and a tradition and traditions that have looked inward into the mechanics of experience. Um, how does that tie in both the reductionist model that we explore so very well, which Rudy has helped now to explore with me, and how do we tie it into the contemplative traditions that have looked inward and experienced the witnessing of experience. Because experience is in time, but you use a very nice word, being. Being is not in time. Now, of course, you mentioned the woman with Alzheimer's who lost her sense of self. Uh, that's the embodied mind, the sense of personal self. And when we use words like self, it can be um, a bigger mind, right? Well, that, that presumably that self that, that is aware of being aware, that's aware of having a brain, aware of having a mind, is still there inside. It's still inside. But the self that's, that's for which the map has been uh, uh, developed over a lifetime that creates personality, ego, and who you are in, in space and time, this is what's being destroyed by the disease. So to be continued... Uh, I think um, uh, we have a panel now, a short one. This has been a long session. Uh, We want to explore the future together and also have you participate in that. Um, Fascinating. One of the first questions I'd have is the connection between super brain and super genes. Do you guys want to tackle that? I think in in a nutshell, super brain says you're not your brain, you're the user of your brain, that your brain's an organ that serves the real you, um, that even your mind is not who you are. I mean, I go back to that uh, quote from Merging with Shiva that says, you're neither the brain nor the mind, you use your brain to navigate your mind, but you, when I say you use your brain to navigate your mind, that's who you are. That's the self that doesn't go away in Alzheimer's. And in and, 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 uh, supergenes, it's, a, it's an analogy that you're not simply the genes your mom and dad gave you because you're modifying expression of your genes every day with the choices you make, the experiences you have, your habits. Your, the, the, the original genes you get are like clay that you then sculpt. You can't change the clay, but you can sculpt it with, your, with how you live your life. So in both cases, epigenetics and neuroplasticity serve you. So again, a, a little exercise for common people like us. Uh, the letters of the alphabet create a language. The letters of genes are four, right? A, T, C, and G. Right. And then the letters create a word, and the word is the gene. That'd be the gene, yeah. And then, of course, um, words and letters don't create a language until you create sentences and paragraphs and ultimately stories. And so the way we are looking at this is your body is a story of experiences that you've had. The DNA is the letters. The intergenic DNA is the punctuation. It's, it's, it's also creating the order of, it's also creating the plot because it's telling those different genes how to interact and how to communicate with each other. So it's uh, okay. to some extent a director. And as well. then, of course, we're putting together 
those genes by activating some, decreasing some, shutting off some, and uh, ultimately your life is a story that uh, gets uh, embodied as this physical body. Yeah, you can say your life is a story, and it's and you are writing the story, but it's being transcribed through epigenetics and neuroplasticity in your genes and brain, respectively. Jonathan, you need to go one step further. The one who's writing the story is formless being. But that's to be continued. Now, where does Jonathan yeah, fit right, in so this? Let me, uh, I mean, this let me is... Uh, <laughs> so, uh, from, from the opposite perspective, as a, as a reader, uh, rather than a writer of the, of the two books, I think um, uh, both books serve uh, very powerfully as motivators for behavioral change, which, as a physician, I'm always looking for, because changing habits is the hardest thing we ask of one another. Physicians ask of patients, and physicians ask of physicians. Um, and I think what both books give is a scientifically rigorous roadmap that offers hypothetical, explana- hypothetical mechanisms through which making choices improves health. And as patients, we're always looking for ways to motivate ourselves to do difficult things. So, Rudy, I mean, Jonathan spoke about the Brain Initiative. Do you want to say anything more? Well, I think, it, it, you know, it's entirely unique um, in that I think it's the first time that, first of all, integrative medicine and conventional medicine and integrative uh, medical research and conventional medical research will be combined. Uh, and on top of that, we're not just treating patients but those at risk and especially focusing on those who are perfectly fine, who are just looking to preserve and promote their brain health and um, maximize their potential as a human being with their brain. So, and this is, a, of course, the same, in, in the same uh, breath, that's how you uh, stave off disease. So I think if we, you know, with the plan to have the three of us um, directing this from integrative medicine to clinical to research, um, this would be entirely unique in the world, and uh, we're looking really forward to, to launching it. Tomorrow morning session is going to be on technology because we believe that technology can accelerate the whole process as well, including virtual reality as a treatment modality, light and sound, sensory modulation, neural biofeedback. Some of those technologies are here for you to try out, but uh, I encourage you to come to the technology section. And I just want to say that uh, uh, we are very grateful, all of us, that this is happening. <clears throat> uh, David spoke about gratitude. We have a paper out right now on uh, what happens to inflammatory markers in your blood when you experience gratitude. We were having people write gratitude journals. And then I realized, why do we have to do that? Just be grateful for existence. Just be grateful. <laughs> for every breath, and then we'll see what happens. But um, if you want anyone who's interested in the Brain Initiative, you want to talk personally to Jonathan or Rudy or to Richard, uh, please do so. I'm also available, but I'm also running the show behind the scenes, so uh, leave it up to you. Um, Jonathan, changing habits... Uh, leading to gene modification. How do you accomplish that as a clinician? Well, um, actually, Deepak alluded to one practice, the gratitude journal. So one of the uh, 
exercises or treatments, if you will, that, that we prescribe, if you will, uh, all of our injured patients um, and their family members is, is a, a very uh, small gratitude journal where we ask them to write uh, up to three good things that have happened every day. Uh, it's very helpful, particularly during the, um, the, the scary times in the ICU. And uh, I've used this as well in, uh, with patients who are not, um, who are not acutely ill. But, but that's an example I would offer that uh, habit change, once it's achieved, uh, represents in some, is represented in some way uh, by epigenetic changes. Uh, that's not been proven yet, but given what we know about the way epigenetics works, it's got to be true. But even if it does, isn't, it's still therapeutic. So that's an example. Deepak? So, of course, uh, we teach meditation. We've done it for 30 years, and there are a lot of misconceptions about what meditation is. Uh, we teach reflective self-inquiry, sensory observation of sense experiences, body awareness, breath awareness, contemplative practices. But I have to say that if you want one place to uh, find out uh, how to change uh, your experience of life, I would still go along with uh, Dan Siegel's Wheel of Awareness. Check it out. on, on Go to drdansiegel.com and look for Wheel of Awareness, which has its origins in wisdom traditions. But, um, you know, it has been said that the highest form of human intelligence is to the ability to observe yourself um, without judging yourself. And if you just do that, uh, slowly, transformation occurs. Not overnight, but uh, slowly. And also, you can observe the, all the things that you can be aware of in the wheel of awareness. Uh, consciousness is, is the subjective knowing of experience. Um, what you experience is, of course, the five senses, your body, your mental space, and your relationships. And that's a great way to begin to shift habits that we've uh, created over a lifetime. But it does happen, and happens slowly, not too drastically, because otherwise, you see, there's a thin line between sages, psychotics, geniuses, and scientists. We live in a um, culture of stress, a society that is always connected 24-7, always on. How do you begin to change that so you change gene expression, too. We can all jump in on that. Well, I, I, think I sort of slide it. Basically, it starts with recognizing your bad habits. You need to say, take some time to think about those, each of those categories, diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, and just uh, think about what you're doing wrong. Um, and at that point, um, you know, try to now start literally, literally rewiring, start to create a program in your brain that allows you to just avoid those habits while you routinely take on new habits. And the beautiful thing about epigenetics and neuroplasticity is that if you stick with it, um, after about 60 days, your neurons have rewired. And anyone who wants to say that that's not true is wrong. I mean, neuroplasticity uh, works with repetition. So does epigenetics. Gene expression changes are initially temporary, but with habits, the DNA actually becomes chemically modified 
not just on the genes, but in the intergenic DNA, and gene expression programs are modified. And this has been shown in study after study. This isn't uh, guesswork anymore. The epigenome roadmap papers in Nature over the years um, have shown that this is the case. So it really is recognition and in repetition of new habits. And after a while, you don't have to think about it anymore. Your genes and your brain do it for you. That's, that's what you want to take advantage of. So, so Jonathan, as a, as a go ahead. Since you asked, right? Yes. Let me just give you an experience right now, okay? So I'm going to ask you a question, and you can answer it, okay? Um, are you aware right now? Who did you consult? <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, are you aware? Don't answer it till I raise my hand, and then you can collectively say yes. I learned this from a great uh, teacher, uh, Rupert Spira, but I'll show you how to accelerate this process. So again, I'm going to ask you, are you aware? Don't answer the question till I raise my hand, then we can collectively say yes. Are you aware? So are you aware is a thought. Yes is a thought. In between is awareness. The awareness of a thought is not a thought. So I'm going to ask you again, are you aware? This time don't answer the question, just turn to who is aware. Are you aware? This presence is awareness. Awareness is presence. It is not in time. Thought is in time. You can be in this place anytime you want. There's no stress here, right? So I was going to ask you the same question from, well, from your I'll, perspective. I'll bring it maybe down to earth at least. Or okay. not, or <laughs> from but, the neurology uh, side. So, so in the, in the uh, habit change is, is such a challenge, we all know. And uh, uh, what I have found and, and what I think is fundamental to enabling people to change their habits, those who may not have such an understanding of consciousness, is uh, you have to avoid bad feeling. So you have to set up a program for habit change that is very high risk for feeling good. Uh, so that's breaking it down into small pieces. You know, you read super genes and you look at all the things you want to accomplish. Pick one, start with that, and then make it a, a, a practice that you pick up a new one uh, when the old one, perhaps, when the, the, the first new one is secure. I wish that we physicians were trained in enabling habit change for our patients. It would be a great service that we could provide, but there, as far as I'm aware, there aren't medical school curricula yet in habit change. There ought to be. But we could aren't. do that in the Institute. Absolutely. I mean, one of the issues, and I know Deepak gets at this a lot in his work, is the impact of negative um, aspects of trying to force habit change rather than encouraging. 
Um, is there a way of, of moving that conversation in a direction? Yeah, that if you try to change a habit, that itself is a stressful experience, right? So you don't have to, if you try, then you're already not in the game. You've disqualified yourself. Um, trying to change is very difficult to change. But slipping into awareness uh, can be very natural. And uh, that's why contemplative practices help again and again. And uh, we've seen change occurring over years. People stopping smoking, addictive behavior, improved relationships, just as a result of being aware. And I would reinforce that. You know, stress is a very interesting uh, kind of concept, it's a very Western concept based on the perception of threat, that life is a threat, and it's part of our evolution, it's part of the uh, reptilian brain. When I was in medical school, the way we remembered the functions of the reptilian brain were the four Fs, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproduction. So that's, of course, survival, right? <laughs> Uh, but that's, that's a very primitive part of our brain. And there are other parts of our brain, as, the, as um, Rudy mentioned, the limbic brain or the emotional brain, which you cultivate by paying attention to love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And then the cortical brain, which is best used uh, with self-reflection. Who am I? What do I want? What's my purpose? Etc., etc. Uh, so maybe tomorrow morning I can lead a meditation on some of that. You know, just a comment. When, when Deepak and I decided we were going to write Superbrain, he told me I had to read I Am That by uh, Nisa Gadatta and sent me, nicely sent me the book. Do you remember that? And, um, and one of the things that really struck me in that book was uh, a, a running theme that desire is memory of pleasure and reward. And fear is memory of pain and punishment. So let's say a desire becomes an addiction, or let's say a fear becomes a phobia. I think for me, just knowing that the reason why I'm afraid of something is because I have a memory of pain associated with that something forces me to, to look back. Where that memory come from? Well, if I have an addiction, before diving into an addiction, uh, remembering that that came, that this is coming from memory of, of pleasure and reward. And I think as soon as you have that awareness, it helps in breaking it down, and you know, you know, and it takes away some of that servitude that phobias and addictions can impart on you. See, one of the gifts of uh, being human is we are creative, we have imagination, intuition, insight, choice. But there's a curse that comes with it, too, uh, because uh, of our ability to imagine and interpret past experience. So fear is nothing but the anticipation of pain in the future as a result of pain in the past. Anger and hostility is remembered pain. Guilt and shame is directing the same thing at yourself. And then depression is the depletion of energy as a result of all of the above. So these are human dilemmas. They're not, you know, if you kick a dog, 
the dog also remembers. Mm -hmm. And if you meet that dog five years later, it may attack you. But unlike a human being, it doesn't plan for five years how to get even. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's our existential suffering. You know, remembered pain with the desire to get even. Uh, It's all the problems in the world right now. Uh, If you realize that the memory, we don't even know where that memory is, you know, before we recall it. And most of your thoughts, by the way, this is a very important thing to remember, don't belong to you. They're recycled social conversation. (laughs) So why do you own them? Unless you have a really original thought like Einstein or a great artist or the Beatles, most of your thoughts are not yours. They're the result of the hypnosis of social conditioning. You don't even have to own them. They just are like ripples in the ocean of consciousness. Observe them, let them go. Observe and move on. Rudy, soft inheritance. What is it? Is it possible in humans? Well, soft inheritance means, so hard inheritance is where, you know, mom and dad dealt you a deck of genes and that's what you got for life. Um, uh, Of course, today, now, there are tools for editing the genome, uh, which I think is one of the biggest threats to us as a species when we start thinking we have enough knowledge to edit the actual genome and change those genes and the DNA itself. That's a whole other subject. But a safer subject is that we can directly affect the expression of our genes. We can't do it deliberately. You can't say to yourself, I'm going to you know, change my gene that makes uh, the amyloid protein right now. But we do know from studies of, of other species that specific uh, protocols of behavior um, that, that uh, program uh, whole networks of genes, thousands at a time, to be turned up or down. Your activity is turning up here and down there, and you see those networks like I showed earlier. And so you can use correlation to your advantage. You know that if you eat um, a healthy diet and you feed your microbiome correctly, uh, you get enough sleep, you get enough exercise, meditate, uh, uh, manage stress consciously, we know from, from uh, direct studies in other species that gene expression changes in a more salutary way. We showed it in our own meditation study. So that, when that gene expression and those programs are changing, that's soft wiring. So that's soft inheritance. Soft inheritance also refers to the fact that in mice, there was an amazing experiment that was done where they trained a mouse to be afraid of the smell of cherries. So Mm -hmm. the the mouse would smell cherries and then immediately get a little shock on his uh, foot. So after a while, the mouse smells cherries. He's like, oh, no, you know, not again. And he's cowering in the corner. So then those mice had offspring. Now these offspring are just born... They were never conditioned the way the father was to be afraid. Yet as soon as those offspring smelled cherries, they cowered in the corner. They inherited that fear that was conditioned in those mice in their life. Now think about trauma. Think about 9-11. Think about what we're going through. Think about Trump. So, um, you know, (laughs) sorry for those who like Trump. Um, I, I, don't, I didn't no believe politics. I said I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, but anyway, just think about these things that traumatize you. Um, and, and the fact is that if, if, you, if you're being traumatized in one big you know, wallop or, or little by little on, on, on Fox and CNN every night, 
Um, those can change. Those can lead with routine to epigenetic changes. And at least if we're anything like mice, and we're not, you know, I mean, we still have to show it, you might be able to inherit. Those, those changes can be inherited in the next offspring. That's soft inheritance. Um, you can look at the Dutch hunger winter, World War II. Uh, the Germans were starving the Dutch. They were on a 500-calorie diet, literally eating tulip bulbs. And if you look at the kids that were born of those mothers, where the mothers presumably went, ep- underwent epigenetic changes over those days to deal with a low-calorie diet but still get through pregnancy and survive, the kids who were born, now they were prone to obesity and diabetes. Hmm. They were getting more bang for their buck from a regular Western diet um, and they, they, at least the hypothesis is, and you don't know for sure, that they inherited epigenetic changes that the mother experienced to deal with the low-calorie diet while pregnant. So there are, there are circumstantial evidence in humans you can, where you can imagine soft inheritance, but there's hard evidence from mice and other species. Well, we are on the eve of 9-11. Uh, any lessons learned through this for those who either survived or children of? Well, you know, I mean, there's a study that showed that women who were traumatized by 9-11 and were pregnant at the time, uh, babies born to those women uh, had higher cortisol levels in the saliva. Now, is that epigenetics? I mean, these are all circumstantial and it's not hard evidence. But I think the lesson is that when you go through traumatic events, uh, and it's difficult, the more you can observe the emotions that are, that are uh, evoked and, and not identify with them, but move on, even as hard as it could could be with 9-11, that this is better for you, and if you're in reproductive age, also better, perhaps better for your offspring. So I, I, one of the, um, what I think is very liberating aspects of soft inheritance as opposed to hard inheritance is the, with the dawn of the, of the genome era, with the sequencing of the human genome, we as a medical community, I think, have emphasized hard inheritance because we've started to identify thousands of uh, variants in the hard genome, if you will, that influence risk of disease. And one of the, I think, negative impacts of these discoveries has been a fear of, dis- of understanding what your hard inheritance might be based on your genome sequence. What soft inheritance as a model offers patients, all, all of us, is kind of a, a way to overcome what might be the limits of hard inheritance. In other words, if you have a you inherit a variant that predisposes your risk to diabetes, the chances are that you can, through epigenetic change, have a bigger impact on changing your risk of diabetes than any hard inherited gene sequence could have. And, and so I, I think that's a really liberating uh, concept, and that's how I talk about it with patients, because right now there's a lot of, a lot of emphasis on hard inheritance. In, in support of that, if you look at the big age-related diseases, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, Alzheimer's, in each case, a, a tiny minority of the mutations involved guarantee the disease, uh, probably less than 5% of the whole pie chart. 95% or more of them only affect your risk and susceptibility, meaning you can do something about it with your lifestyle. And epigenetics and neuroplasticity are your two tools to do that. So this brings up something uh, very controversial, and I'm almost scared to bring it up. But oh, good. I do it with Rudy, so why not with you? Uh, I think uh, the way we are understanding um, epigenetic modulations and soft inheritance uh, should make us question 
whether um, Darwinian evolution applies anymore, at least to human beings. Our evolution is now culturally influenced through social interactions, through personal relationships, through the environment, and therefore it's time to uh, rethink evolution. Rudy? I, I know I, it, it shouldn't so, be a question asked to ask to a geneticist. Yeah, you know, I mean, Darwin didn't when Darwin did amazing work. There's no doubt about it. And he didn't know about genes. He didn't know about epigenetics. He did an amazing uh, intellectual thesis without a lot of information. And, he, and but I think we, what I would say is that we, the Darwinian evolution is still a play, but the concept that all mutations are random and that we have no, that we just go along for the ride and a random mutation comes in and survival of the fittest is going to decide if it persists and that we play no role in determining um, what new mutations might be, this is where we have to question whether the, the new mutations that come in uh, like, you know, oh, luckily this bird now has red feathers and now can be seen, and, you know, this is an advantage, and that bird survives, and the other bird with blue feathers doesn't, for whatever reason. So this would say that, with, and this is the key, with epigenetics, you've got to ask, you've got to look at what happens to the DNA itself, right? So picture DNA like three billion beads on a string, now, picture you fold those, those three billion beads. You have to have really big hands for this. But you, you fold them in your hands. And there's red, blue, green, and yellow. And bead number 4,095 that's red, uh, when you fold them one way, is stuck inside. When you fold them another way, it's stuck outside at the top of your, you know, near your fingers. So you expose different beads based on how you fold them. This is what epigenetics does. So epigenetics, when you chemically modify the DNA, especially the in, these, this junk DNA or intergenic DNA, affects how DNA is three-dimensionally folded. So certain beads become exposed, certain ones stay stuck in the middle. This will directly affect uh, susceptibility to mutation. And this is a very, very hot area right now of how epigenetic effects on DNA also affect where mutations might occur. Now, what is epigenetics caused by? You. Your lifestyle, your choices, your conscious choices. So now, if you put that all together, the logic says the way you live your life, as you epigenetically change your DNA, is also affecting which DNA might be mutated later on. That's where we affect our evolution. That's a new thought. So, so, um, I, I don't think there has to be an either or. Uh, the key with the Darwinian model is it it takes many, 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 many lifetimes to see any change. And I think what's important for us is to focus on what we can control. And the epigenetic mechanism is one that we can control. And so there's no question that there is likely to be some impact through our choices on our evolution. Right. And within a much shorter time frame that we can observe or perhaps our children or grandchildren can observe. We're responsible for our genomes. Yeah. And we can allow our consciousness to guide our evolution.
So we have time for just a couple of uh, last questions. One big question I want to pose, because at the end of the day, what we're working against in some sense is time, um, our lifespan. Can aging be unlearned? Go ahead. There are three ways to look at aging. One is um, chronological age, the day you were born. Uh, the second is your psychological age, which is how you think of yourself um, and how young you feel. And that includes everything you do, uh, including you know, your physical capacity, your mental capacity, your emotions. And then there's a third way, which is to measure biological age. And um, these are three different uh, ways to look at aging. And um, until now, we didn't have very good ways of looking at biological age. So we would look at uh, things like blood pressure, bone density, body temperature regulation, fat content, cholesterol HDL ratios, the skin thickness, number of wrinkles, and uh, on and on, sugar tolerance, and sex hormone levels, many ways, but cumbersome. I think we are getting to the stage when we can look at um, new ways of measuring biological age. Uh, telomerase is just the beginning, then telomere length, inflammatory markers, uh, transcriptome analysis. So we're looking at a new era in ways to measure age and connect it to lifestyle. You've been hearing buzzwords like today's 80 is yesterday's 60 and today's 60 is yesterday's 40. I'm going to be celebrating my 70th birthday and I can say it very proudly. I've never taken any medication or uh, avoid hospitals as um, as dangerous as prisons, and um, and uh, Even you know spot. I feel biologically the same way. In fact, better than I uh, felt uh, 30 years ago. So it's a great era to look forward to. Where do you want to tackle that? No, I would also. I you know I, I don't look at aging as as a bad thing. I look at it as a continuation of development. I mean, you know, look at uh, a one cell. A person and then an embryo and um, you know an infant, a toddler. Uh, we continue to develop. You look at a fruit; uh, it's it's small. It's a flower, then it's small. It's green. It's sour. It grows. It becomes sweet, and then it rots. Um, you know, I I look at it as how can we not rot as soon as we do. I know that's a really bad analogy, but, <laughs> but if I was a fruit, I want to stay sweet and an apple. I want to stay sweet and red as long as I can. But it's still one developmental program. We're just going to learn how to deal with it. And lifestyle, we've learned already, uh, you know, we, we you know, think about why people suddenly live till 50 years old in 1900 versus 35 years old. It's very simple. We, we covered the sewers. I mean, that's the number one thing we did for health in the 1800s was we figured, hey, you've got to cover that stuff up. You know, and then in 1900s we went from 50 to 72 because of antibiotics and, and, and well, just just uh, dealing with infections. So there's always ways we're learning to not rot as soon as we do, and I think we'll continue to do that. And I think that's part of what we're learning here. Jonathan, you have not that we rot, just, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I would I would just take, take what Rudy was saying and 
we want to not be fearful of aging. Uh, and so if you think of, of the trajectory and maximizing human potential at each stage of life, whatever that stage is, then aging becomes less of a challenge rather than the challenge becoming how do I maximize my human potential at this stage of life and in the next stage of life. So I, I think we want to get away from aging as bad. No, I just want to add one thing. You know, things that are very good for us, if we don't use them judiciously, they can turn into things that are bad for us. So Rudy mentioned that things that extended lifespan were uh, sewers, better hygiene, and that was the first thing. And then the second thing was, uh, was nutrition. Uh, you know, people had access to food. Uh, it wasn't coronary bypass surgery, um, and you should know that because it's the number one surgery done in this country. Coronary bypass surgery and angioplasty are the two biggest surgeries. $200 billion industry does not change the mortality from heart disease if a patient has angina by more than 2%. I'm saying stable angina. If it's unstable, it will save your life. But most people don't know that. Okay, same thing, antibiotics got rid of infectious disease, and so we are very lucky that penicillin was discovered. But right now, 30% of the microbiome on our planet has disappeared. You won't find it in the soil unless you go to the Amazon. And that's not just antibiotics, it's the contamination of our food with petroleum products, it's all kinds of other things. But we have to be very careful how we use powerful drugs. Uh, they're very useful, life-saving. If used injudiciously, they can cause huge problems. I remember one night when I was an intern, I got up to go to the bathroom and I woke up uh, to go to the bathroom. I heard my nurse and she was waking up a patient. She said, Mr. Smith, will you please wake up? I have to give you your sleeping pill. So I went up to her and I said, you're waking this poor guy up to giving him a sleeping pill? She said, yeah, because I know he's going to uh, wake up in 15 minutes. Um, then he'll wake me up and I'll wake you up. And I said, go ahead, give him the sleeping pill. And afterwards, you know, when I started to think about this, and I, there's data to show you this, that the five most common conditions for which we use drugs in a hospital are pain, anxiety, nausea, insomnia, and constipation. Look it up. If you want to remember the acronym, PANIC. Pain, anxiety, <laughs> nausea, insomnia, constipation. All these things can be managed through lifestyle changes, through stress management, through a little bit of exercise, even a little movement, passive, in the bed, or massage in the bed. So we need to start looking at data in an impartial manner. Medical accidents in hospitals, um, it's the equivalent of two jumbo jet crashes every other day. Now, no other industry would tolerate that, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine if that was another industry. But we've created a monster by looking at in isolation things. And that's why I'm so grateful that we can work together for this mm -hmm. new initiative. 
I've just got one last question. You have one minute each to answer it, which is, where are we in the arc of understanding the brain, and what will be, in your mind, the biggest breakthrough in the next decade? I think where we are in the arc of understanding the brain is uh, the brain is an activity. It's a process, and it's not a thing by itself, and that process is governed by everything that we can call experience. Okay, personal experience, which includes our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our desires, our imagination, our personal relationships, our social interactions, our environment, our food, the whole gamut. And so the brain is an amazing um, integrating system that uh, modulates the experience of life. And the biggest breakthrough you expect? Sorry? The biggest breakthrough you hope for in the next decade? The biggest breakthrough is integrating what's happening in the microbiome, what's happening as what we call internal and external experience, the connectome, and mapping the brain in a way that we begin to understand how it works. You know, this is, we still don't fully understand how the brain works. And uh, I think that's the big project. This is the decade of the brain, but we need to look at more things that influence the brain, including the, the health of our microbiome. You know, the traffic from your gut to your brain mm. is bidirectional. And so we can't just look at the brain. You have to look at the gut, too, and other things. Jonathan? So I'm going to save Alzheimer's for Rudy, but um, I would, uh, if I were to pick one breakthrough, I think we're going to see <clears throat> a real revolution in the understanding of choice, lifestyle change, habit formation, and its application to healthcare and human health. And where are we in the arc of understanding the brain? We have so certainly some understanding, but we have very limited ability to apply what we've understood in real life. Rudy? Yeah, I think the biggest breakthrough that I'm hoping for especially in terms of Alzheimer's disease, which, you know, with 71 million baby boomers, this is a huge epidemic that's just getting bigger, is uh, I'm very encouraged by the data that says you can have, I didn't mention this in my talk, you can have a, a head full of plaques and tangles, Alzheimer levels, plaques and the tangles, but if your brain does not react against that with inflammation, you do not get Alzheimer's disease. So we have these resilient brains where people die in the 80s and 90s, and you look in there, very rare, and you look in the brain, um, and, and there's tons of plaques and tangles, and the neuropathologist says this is Alzheimer's. And say, no, the person died cognitively fine, and in each case, what's missing is inflammation. So, if we, so we're working very hard on this. If we can figure out a way to stop inflammation and make every brain resilient to the presence of plaques and tangles, we can uh, eradicate uh, Alzheimer's disease. And in terms of our being on our way to do that, our lab and other labs have discovered the genes that control inflammation, and now we've incorporated those into our Alzheimer's. In addition, we're already identifying compounds that can hit that. Last word. I'd just like to say that that inflammation is not just here embodied. It's part of our political dialogue in the world right now. Look at the election, if that's not a good example of inflammation. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Too much information.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.